CPA and CFP Don Cash has made it his life's work to help people like you plan their finances and achieve their retirement goals. It's time for your money and your life. All right, here we go. This is the long-awaited show with my friend, Kevin Haney. And Kevin is not only the owner of Ask Benefit Solutions and GrowingFamilyBenefits.com in East Brunswick, but also the devoted husband of Doreen. And together they have five children, Sean, Ashley, Karen, David, and Scott. And full disclosure, Kevin and Doreen are clients of mine and uh, of my firm. And not only that, but by the way, Kevin is a clutch golfer. So welcome, Kevin. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I, I only wish I could hit the ball as far as you do. <laughs> well, pretty you know, together we're a pretty good team, I think. We played in an outing uh, several weeks ago, and I know we didn't come in the money, Kevin. Came in, I think, fourth out of a whole bunch of guys. But that's you know pretty good for uh, a couple of aging golfers, don't you think? It is. It is. So what we want to talk about uh, today, besides your business and your family, is your experience on 9-11 of 2001. And this is a more somber show than usual. This Saturday coming up is the 20th anniversary of that day when we lost almost 3,000 Americans on that horrific Tuesday morning, along with hundreds of firefighters, police officers, and rescue workers. It's one of those days that's seared into the memories of almost all Americans uh, old enough to remember. And um, your personal story, your personal 9-11 story, Kevin, is amazing. In addition, your life story after that day is really one about transformation and hardship, success, love, and living out your purpose in life in a way that you likely would never have imagined 20 years ago. But let's turn the clock back to that Tuesday in September. 20 years ago on the 11th. What were you doing that morning? Um, where were you working and, and how did that day unfold for you? Yeah, well, I think my story is very different from uh, most people who have a 9-11 story. You know, so that morning I was uh, sitting on uh, the runway at Newark Airport, uh, getting ready to uh, fly to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, the day before, actually several months before, I had uh, separated from my wife and uh, we had set the date of September 10th to uh, you know, decide whether we should work things out or go our separate ways. And, and I had desperately wanted it to be work things out. And she had decided to go separate ways. So, mm. uh, you know, I was sitting there. It was, I thought, the low point in my life. You know, remember, you know, thinking, of, uh, wonder what would happen if something uh, happened on this flight. Now, how would I respond? Because... Well, I just had uh, different uh, feelings and emotions going through my head at that time. Mm. But other than that, it was just a normal flight out to San Francisco. And then uh, a couple of hours in, uh, the pilot came on and said, uh, we've been ordered to make an emergency landing. We're going to be uh, landing in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, there's been a terrorist attack, Pentagon's on fire, and the World Trade Centers are down. And then he just clicked off and everybody was... You know, obviously that was a big surprise. Wow, wow, and uh, and you you told me that's just amazing. But you you had told me earlier when we spoke about this many years ago, and you told me earlier today, just in reflection, that you think that you may have been booked on the 
Flight 93 that left one hour after your flight, approximately, and they had changed your flight uh, at some point a few days prior to that. So tell me how that unfolded. Oh, you stole a little of my thunder there, but okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, you know, my, my memory is that, uh, you know, people on the plane were saying, gee, that could have been us. And, you know, my first instinct was, yeah, you're right. But there were thousands of planes in the air that, you know, this morning, you know, so it was what one out of a thousand that it could have been us. And then, you know, we got off the plane and uh, walked into the terminal and uh, you know, we were able to see on TV all the pictures and the stories. And uh, shortly thereafter, learned that, uh, you know, the hijackers only picked planes that were flying from the East Coast to the West Coast. And I said, oh, well, that narrows things down quite a bit. Mm. And then shortly after that, I learned that uh, one of the flights that was leaving from Newark to San Francisco crashed in Pennsylvania. I was like, oh, that narrowed the odds down even further. And then, uh, you know, then a couple of days later, uh, you know, I realized that uh, it's quite possible that I was booked on that United Flight 93 because, uh, you know, the travel agent who had booked the flight originally uh, was able to find a cheaper deal on Continental. The original flight was $2,000. This one was $500 and a free rental car. So they, they made the change. And, and so after that, I was like, wow, it was a lot closer call than I ever thought it would be. Yeah. And then here you find yourself um, somewhere, would you say in, in Michigan, somewhere in the- Yeah, in the, Grand Rapids, Michigan. So the, uh, you know, the first thing I did when they you know, made the announcement, I was like, where on earth is Grand Rapids, Michigan? And you know, who do I know that, that lives there? And so there was a an old fraternity brother who lived in Indianapolis and my uncle who lived in South Bend, Indiana, who were the two closest that I knew. So I got off the plane and I said, well, my uncle's a little closer. Let me call him, see if he picks up. And and he did. Mm. So I rented a car and uh, drove to South Bend. And I remember uh, listening to President Bush's speech uh, that evening on the campus of Notre Dame my one and only time on the Notre Dame campus. Wow. And uh, when you were on the plane or I guess getting off the plane, when did you find out what was going on? Did, you, did everyone on the plane know what was happening? You mentioned there was a, an announcement made, but when did you really find out like more of the details of what was going on that day? Uh, it just kind of came out in dribs and drabs. Mm. Uh, I think once we uh, landed and started taxiing on the runway, uh, they put through a, like a radio feed with some information. And then we really didn't get the full story until we were in the terminal and uh, we were watching the pictures on TV. Shortly after that, that I realized that, uh, you know, there's not going to be any more planes in the air for a long time. So I went and rented a car before they ran out. So you know, now you have a very long drive back home to New Jersey from that point. I mean, your, your mind must have been absolutely racing with with thoughts right i mean you're maybe thinking wow that could have been me in flight 93 and you heard president bush's speech and now you're driving home you have the issue with a family to deal with i mean uh, your your heart must have been pounding and your mind must have been going a thousand miles an hour at that point uh no i think i think i was more numb were you yeah 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 and and the hardest part about it was i'm driving home but i really don't want to get there because i'm going to be you know, driving home to an empty house. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, wow. Uh, 
I, I found a, you know, a friend that was semi on the way living in Western Jersey. I called him up and stayed with him for the night and then uh, made my way on. And you make it back to New Jersey in a day or two, I assume, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was maybe a 12 hour ride or something like that. Now, at that time, you were working in, in corporate America, much different than we'll get into what you're doing right now. But you recently showed me a photo of your, yourself actually playing golf in Asia like the following month in October of 2001. So the company you had been working for got you right back on the road after 9-11. And in fact, were you not rebooked to, into that same trip to California like right after 9-11? Am I correct on that? That is correct. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons I left corporate America was uh, <laughs> yeah. my, my travel experiences right after. Yes, I was in San Francisco on September the 18th, which was, I had no problem with that because I figured it was the safest possible time to get on a plane because the security would be on the highest possible alert. Right. And I was able to drive to the airport. I parked in long term parking and I was a five-minute walk from the terminal. I mean, there were nobody there. You, know, you went through the, the counters, and it was a ghost town. I got through security in five minutes. Mm. Uh, but they were very careful. They opened every bag, and they searched through uh, your luggage, took every piece out, and put it back in again. So, you know, there you are. You're back, and you, you know, you're in corporate America. You're traveling. And, you know, just talk about um, a little bit about, you know, how you're – way of thinking change, your perspective, your plans at work, that sort of thing, and relationships, decision that you made to leave corporate America. Talk a little bit about that and, and you know, how your life changed at that point. Yeah, all right. You know, the, the first piece was the, uh, the, the travel because uh, I wasn't seeing my children as much. And then all of a sudden, uh, a month after 9-11, uh, I booked a, a three-week trip to Sydney. Australia, because the company was headquartered in Sydney. Mm. And so I flew out and, and actually had a, we had an exchange student who lived with us when I was in high school from Australia. She's from Melbourne. So I flew to Melbourne, spent a couple of days uh, visiting her and then over to Sydney for some uh, business meetings. And then from there, when you fly to Sydney on business, they prefer that you go around the world. Instead of going to Sydney and, and straight back, they want you to circumnavigate the globe. Mm. Apparently, it's cheaper. Okay. And so we had a couple of other things uh, lined up. So some business meetings in Sydney, uh, then flew up to Singapore, uh, where we met with some uh, investors, uh, capital investment company that was uh, thinking of investing in our, our business. We were relying on investment capital at the time. Then from there, uh, we had a meeting in Hong Kong. And so I looked at the map and said, wait a minute, I'm flying over Thailand. And one of my fraternity brothers lives in, in, in sorry, Bangkok. When am I ever going to get around here again? So uh, I scheduled a stop in Bangkok and spent a couple of days with my uh, old college buddy where we played golf on one of the most humid days <laughs> I've ever experienced. I just remember uh, my hands being really sore and raw from holding the club. <laughs> if you've ever played golf on a really humid day, your mm -hmm. hands really start to hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's where I got my picture with two five-foot female caddies who 
laughed every time I hit a bad shot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they had a very good time that day. Anyway, so from there, we went on to Hong Kong. And then from Hong Kong, uh, spent a week in Paris at a trade show and then flew home. And then I remember my, I think it was my 20th college reunion was the, the weekend I got back. I got back from, I was in Paris on Friday and Williamsburg, Virginia on Saturday. Mm -hmm. I was very tired. And that's where you uh, went to college and uh, uh, William and Mary, uh, William and Mary in Williamsburg, correct? That is correct. All yes. right. Well, anyway, uh, then I had a, another around the world trip. And this is one that did me in. Because after one of the side effects of the 9-11 the is, you know, this was a startup software company mm. that was reliant on investors' capital. And it spooked the American market. And uh, we didn't have, I, I was running sales for the Americas. And then my boss left because he knew the company was not going to make it. So they made me uh, VP of sales worldwide. And my job was to fly to London and then to Hong Kong and then down to Sydney again to present to the board about the deals that were in the pipeline. And there really weren't any. But on my trip to London, you, you sleep on the plane. You land in London at five in the morning. The hotel won't check you in until five in the afternoon. Mm. So I walked around London all day until I was able to check into my hotel. Then I had another uh, meeting outside of London and flew to Hong Kong, where I slept on the plane again. Uh, I just remember being in the Hong Kong airport. It was three in the morning, and my body did not know what time it was. <laughs> I had my meetings there, slept on the plane once again to uh, Sydney. I had to walk around Sydney for 12 hours until my hotel would open again. Mm. You know, it sounds very glamorous, but it, it was not. Doesn't sound glamorous at all to me, actually. <laughs> In retrospect, maybe, you know, yes. the, the traveling and staying at fancy hotels and a lot of meetings and, you know, meals and high-end restaurants sounds fancy. But uh, I could yeah. imagine how exhausted you were and how you missed your kids, right? I mean, they were very, very young at the time, but they were both under 10 years old, I guess. They were four and five. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, uh, they had a nice... Uh, Beautiful dinner, uh, sitting you know in a restaurant underneath the, the Sydney Harbor Bridge with the CEO of the company, where he thanked me for everything. And I said, you know, it doesn't look like we're going to be closing any deals in the Americas anytime soon. I don't think you want your uh, uh, VP of Sales to be based uh, in North America. They really need to be uh, Australia based. And he said, thank you for bringing that up. They gave me a very nice severance package, and we went our separate ways. All right. So then you transition? Not quite. I uh, had a, a one-year stint with uh, some people. Uh, I spent majority of my career was uh, with Experian, which is a big consumer credit company. Sure. And uh, some people that I knew there had moved over to a related business. Uh, they hired me on to uh, in a sales role. And that was during a very difficult time from a you know, family standpoint and uh, wasn't firing on all cylinders. And about a year later, we mutually agreed that it was not working out and it was time to find something else to do. So then you move from corporate America, it sounds like at that point, from software right. Experian to starting a benefit solution company, right? A total 180. 
offering disability and health insurance only a couple of years after 9-11 with still a very young family support. So it seems like, you know, in a way, Kevin, there's a lot of parallels between how people made life changes post 9-11 and how people are doing the same today post COVID or, you know, I guess you could say in the midst of, of COVID. So tell me what drove the decision. Okay. Was a lot harder than you thought it would be. Maybe you can share with me a a turning point that you had at some point there and what advice you might give to someone looking to change careers uh, midlife after it sounds like what was a very successful and lucrative corporate career. Yeah, it was. The reason I wanted to change, well, there's several. One was the the travel aspect. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to be near my, my kids because I didn't have the opportunity as I did in the past to see them every day. Mm. So I didn't want to be out of town on the days where I could see them. Uh, another one was uh, I wanted to be in control of my own runway. And, th- and there's different kinds of risks when you uh, run your own business as opposed to working for a company. You work for a company, you're guaranteed a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they can, they can decide anytime they want uh, that they no longer need you. And in, in my first job, I was with Dun and Bradstreet, and, and I saw the company went through a bad year, and they just went through and they let go all of the senior executives, all the people with experience, all the ones who were in their 40s and 50s, just pink slips left and right. So mm-hmm. it happened twice. And you know, after seeing that, because it was all the younger people that kept their jobs, and after seeing that, I said, you know what? When I get to be 40 or 50, that's going to be me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I need to think about making that change on my terms uh, rather than waiting for them to make that decision for me. And the other one was you know, in terms of being in control of my own runway, you know, I'd just gone through a very difficult life change uh, with my family. And I had been a very high performer, but I was no longer functioning at that level. Mm. And so I needed a longer runway. I needed the I needed to be in control of how long I stayed in my business. I didn't want somebody else making that decision for me. So I found supplemental health insurance and, and thought it would be easy because I had all of this vast sales experience and uh, terrific training and uh, wonderful bosses who taught me a lot about business and that I thought I could easily transition into uh, you know, selling to smaller businesses. And how easy was it? Yeah, I was dead <laughs> wrong. <laughs> it was a completely different skill set. It's a completely different ballgame. It's uh, you have to, you know, major account selling is, is different than trying to open up lots of small business accounts. Mm. And they were completely different skill sets. And I had to start as if I didn't know anything. In fact, all the things I had learned in the past probably hurt me more than they helped me. Mm. Now, why do you say that? You know, in, in corporate, you had to be strategic. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing strategic about selling to small businesses. It was just contact as many as you possibly can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what I didn't recognize was that uh, the organization I was with, you know, was, was a pyramid scheme where the people who were in the sales management roles were making all the money and, and they made it by just recruiting as many people as they possibly could. Mm. And, there was just so many other people out there doing the same thing that I was doing, 
that every small business I contacted said, oh my goodness, could you make them stop calling? I had no idea where I would encounter that. Mm. So I've heard it said that people who start small businesses, Kevin, you know, start their own businesses, they're, they are either, they fall into three categories. They're either um, freedom fighters. They want control and freedom, time freedom and freedom to kind of, you know, uh, blaze their own trail. They're either builders. And you could think of like a um, Jeff Bezos early on in Amazon had a very small business, but he wanted to build it to make it the mega business it is today. Yep. Uh, or they're technicians. They are, you know, you can think of like the plumber, the mechanic, the carpenter, you know, they, they, someone who just, you know, loves to tell you exactly how things work, right? So uh, it sounds like you you fall more heavily into the freedom fighter mode, maybe a little bit of the technical, but more of the freedom fighter. You had mentioned the term of, of uh, building your own runway. Correct. Yes. I wanted to be in control of my destiny. So here you are, you know, after many years, your business has turned successful. We'll get into how it evolved, but what advice would you give someone looking to change careers in midlife? Because now we have a lot of people over the past year and a half, um, they have worked remotely. They, they had, they've maybe typically been road warriors. They've been doing a lot of travel, maybe working in New York City. That's where the, a lot of the big companies are headquartered or North Jersey. But they've been re- working remotely over the past, let's say, year or so, year and a half. And now they're being pulled back into the office, being pulled out to the field to go travel again. That might be delayed a little bit for a while, but they're going to have to go back into it eventually. And they want to strike out on their own. They want to have a life change mid-career, like you had mentioned, not be kind of stuck at age 40 or 50, you know, in that downsizing mode where they're the victim of a decision to cut back uh, uh, within the corporation. What advice would you give to someone looking to make that, that kind of a change in midlife? Well, you know, the first one is they have to find their passion, mm. uh, but they may not find it initially. And that's part of my story. Big advantage I had is I, I had money and savings. Mm. And you know, the best way to summarize my situation, because I, I went through uh, a marital change at the same time I started a business, was that my assets got cut in half. Mm. At the same time, my expenses doubled because mm. now I had to support two homes and my income dropped to zero. Yeah. So I had to be very careful about where and how I spent my money. And, you know, in the beginning stages, you know, I thought it would be easy and it wasn't. And I got very demoralizing very quickly. And it took a while for me to figure out what I liked doing because I didn't, you know, I found out very quickly I did not like what I was doing. And the fact that I wasn't good at it made me dislike it even more, (laughs) (laughs) which made me be even worse at it. Mm -hmm. You know, so there was a sustained period where I thought that, you know, I might never earn money again. Mm. I went from, uh, you know, having the Midas touch where everything turned to gold. All of a sudden my, my wand was broken and I, I did not know how to fix it. So the, the business, the ask benefit started, uh, it sounds like 2003 or so. And it, you kind of struggled uh, for a period of time, but ask benefit solutions and the way things have evolved, it's changed dramatically from where it was in, in 2003 until today. And this is just another example of how you were able to adapt to the changing landscape and, and succeed 
you know, far beyond where you originally envisioned. So like many in business, the health benefits business has been completely transformed by the internet. And, you know, talk about that change and, and where you are today and how that, that developed and a little bit about the turning point. Well, I had a vision when I first started. The vision changed multiple times, and it is completely different from anything I ever imagined uh, today. And mostly it's just by, I don't know, walking through open doors and figuring what works and what doesn't. So my original vision was to use direct marketing to open uh, new business accounts because that was my background. I had a direct marketing background. I was very successful at Experian helping large banks target pre-approved credit card offers in the mail. So I thought I could translate that into selling insurance and uh, quickly found out that uh, I had a compliance issue. The company I was selling for was happy to provide me with all the mailers uh, that I wanted, and they would pay for the printing, which was a huge boost. Uh, but they always talked about the products, and I was trying to open up accounts, and there was nothing, there was no mailers to open accounts. So I went to compliance and said, uh, this, please approve this mailer so I can mail it and be stay in compliance. And they never responded. <laughs> <laughs> because Money talks, and I wasn't selling, so nobody paid attention to what I had mm-hmm. to say. And then eventually, I came up with a second vision, which was relating to disability insurance and women who were planning to have a child. I learned that uh, anytime there was a married woman with a ring on her finger, I'd ask her if they're planning on having children, and if so, uh, you know, I had uh, two insurance products that they bought every time. But I would never have a chance to, to tell them that story unless I got to the business owner. Uh, who had agreed to allow me to talk to them. And that was always the obstacle. Uh, so I came up with an approach to talk directly to my target audience, which was families who were planning to have children, communicate to them directly, and then have them introduce me to their employer uh, so that they could take advantage. It's a, a program that was free to the employers to offer. And the biggest objection I always had was, no one will be interested, don't waste your time. I said, well, I have three that are very interested right now. All you have to do is agree to give them a chance to buy it. Uh, So that was the vision. Uh, That's where ASK, our Ask Benefits Solutions, came from, where that name came from. And I came up with three approaches for how to reach my market. One was through daycare centers. I would uh, put out a little tent in the daycare area and uh, talk to parents about how they could uh, save money on their daycare. The daycare providers were happy to point that out to them, have me point that out to them. Uh, I approached uh, fertility clinics, uh, but my message uh, wasn't really harmonious with uh, what they wanted because I wanted to talk about the cost of bringing home a baby. And they didn't like when I did that Mm. because I had to point out that, well, you know, if you have twins, it's going to be a high-risk pregnancy, and you're probably going to start off in a NICU, and that's going to cost you all kinds of money that you need to prepare for. Hmm. Uh, so they didn't like me telling that story. So that didn't work out. And then I built a website to try to attract people who are interested in buying the disability insurance. New Jersey has it as a state-mandated benefit, but uh, 40, 45 other states at the time, did not. Very interesting. So New Jersey has a benefit if you are pregnant that you can acquire some disability 
income during the pregnancy while you're not working. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So now you, you basically are looking for a way to design the website to attract people to be educated about this benefit. Is that right? That is correct. And oh. uh, they couldn't, they could not buy it as an individual. The only way they could get it is if they introduced me to their employer and, uh, and then the employer agreed to offer the programs to all of their employees in addition to them. Yeah, I, so, it worked. I opened up accounts all over the country. All right. So you're opening up accounts all over the country and these, their employees um, who are expecting a baby are buying insurance from you, correct? That's correct. All right. And that was, you know, basically after 2003 or four, right? Somewhere around there. Yes. That's okay. When I started on that uh, particular track. Uh, but then I just found that I really liked uh, developing the website content way more than I liked selling the insurance, even mm. though it was working. I just found myself drawn to doing that. I had I had a passion for uh, developing the website content, understanding the questions that people asked and developing content that matched their search intent. And my traffic grew. Uh, but at the same time, I was reminded of something I learned when I was back at Experian, something called adverse selection. So with uh, in the consumer credit world, you summarize it as uh, the people who are most likely to apply for a loan or a credit card are the ones who are least likely to pay the money back on time. Mm. In the insurance world is the people who are most interested in buying insurance don't qualify to get it. And there's an interesting phenomenon phenomenon it's uh, you know many people want to think they can buy or hope they can buy insurance to cover something they know is about to happen sure and what i found was for every one woman who is planning a pregnancy and interested in buying the insurance before they conceive which was the group that i could help there was 99 who are trying to buy it or wanted to know how they applied for benefits they did not qualify to get. Mm. And I was like, what do I do about this? Well, I didn't have an answer for them. And then, you know, I began developing uh, other content and uh, eventually started putting up advertising on the, uh, on the site and, and it worked. And I just found myself, uh, you know, drawn towards, uh, developing the website content more than it was selling insurance. And, and gradually over time, the mix of revenue uh, grew to the point where I just decided to sunset the insurance business and focus full-time on uh, being a website developer. Well, that's amazing. I mean, you know, so basically you taught yourself how to redesign your website. And does it sound like you, you're figuring out sort of like the um the formula the algorithms that google has inside there to essentially they pay you for people who visit your website correct that is mostly correct yes okay <laughs> you know, you know it, it's it's really a very simple process you know, there's there's tools out there that uh, help you understand the questions that people ask. So mm -hmm. I would look at and say, can I answer this question? And can I answer it in a better way than the other answers that exist out there today? 
Sure. And if I can, then I develop that content. And, uh, you know, for every hundred articles I develop, uh, 30 of them do something. Got it. And then, you know, I wait a couple of years. I, I weed out the stuff that doesn't work and uh, replace it with new stuff. And, and it's always changing. You know, the mix is always changing. So basically, you're, you're redesigning the website. You're a content creator, right? Yes. And you have to get noticed. So people visit you. And through that education and that content, you get paid by the amount of people that visit you. It's fairly simple, correct? Yes, in, in a way, yes. And, and it, it just it fit with my lifestyle because it's, it's a passive income stream. Right. So you're basically at home, you're working in the house, you have control of your destiny to the extent that, I guess, Google doesn't change things. <laughs> they change things all the time. Yeah, so you have to kind of deal with that continually. So the business is going through a lot of changes. Uh, and a lot of development, and it's changed in a way that you never force, uh, you know, foresaw it at the time. But this is still many years ago, and Sean and Ashley are getting ready for college. It's looking like, I guess, back then, you're ready to be an empty nester. And then you meet Doreen, right? So tell me about Doreen, uh, when you met, and, uh, and her unique family situation. Okay, well, there's a little backstory there. All right, go ahead, tell me. Is the, you know, there was a turning point before all this uh, change in my business. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it just came out of the blue. I, uh, Jesus found me. I uh, did not find him. I wasn't looking for him. I didn't know that's what was missing in my life. Okay. Uh, but one day I was uh, visiting a friend who owned a business on corner of Route 516 in White Oak Lane in Oldbridge. And we had our, we had our meeting then ended. There was a couple hours left in the day. I looked outside. I said, oh, there's an office park back there. I'll go knock on some doors, see if I can drum up some business. This is when I was selling an insurance. And I walk back and there's this building with these awnings. It looks like a church. Some, who knows what it was? But, uh, I walk up, I, I, I go into the parking lot and somebody approaches me and says, can I help you out? And usually when that happens in the sales world, what they're saying is, how can I make you go away? <laughs> uh, but this person was sincere. He actually wanted to help. So I explained why I was there. And he said, oh, well, you need to talk to so-and-so. And he walks me into the building and uh, I, I look inside. And, you know, first of all, is what, what on earth is a church doing on a side street in an industrial park? Mm -hmm. Don't you, you know? Everyone knows you put a church on the main street in town where everybody drives by. Sure. This is on a side street with no traffic. This place is huge and they have cameras <laughs> and screens. Because you know, I was born and raised Catholic. Mm -hmm. That's what I knew. They had, they had a drum set. Like, what on earth is this place? And then there was a library and there were some books that... Um, you know, about hope. So, and that's what was missing. I, I had gotten to a point where I had no hope anymore. Mm. I was in a business I didn't like and uh, was not operating on all cylinders. Couldn't figure out how to get my uh, magic wand working again. And I was like, wow, I may have to check this out. 
later. So anyway, the, the person wasn't there. And I go on and knock on some more doors. I end my day, come back, I uh, go to check my emails. And look at that. There's an email from this church. It's like, wow, this is amazing. I open it up. It says, dear Kevin, we receive your materials. We're not interested. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't call again. God bless. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe not. And anyway, about a month or two later, uh, there's these two two gentlemen that I had come to know through some business networking that uh, were, were nice to me when nobody else was nice to me. Because when you go through a difficult time in your life, you, you, you send off this negative aura. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I could just tell that I was giving off this negative aura because people were avoiding me. Uh, but these two guys weren't. And there was just something about them. I was like, what is up with these guys? Uh, they had this peace about them. They had uh, this kindness about them. And there was just something they had that was like, whatever it is they have, I want that. Anyway, I was at a meeting with both of them. And there was a, uh, a lady who was giving a presentation about, I don't know what it was, clothing of some sort. I don't know why I was there going through a presentation like that. And at the end, uh, she said, and I go to the same church as Brian and John. And I said, oh. And, and it turns out Brian actually lived in my apartment complex, mm. which was a strange coincidence. And uh, I had always wondered what church he went to. And I said, so. Well, what church is that? And he said, Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge. I said, get out of here. And so my first instinct was, can you get me in to see the guy, the, the real guy, get me over this other person who told me no? <laughs> You're uh, looking for the boss. Yeah, I wanted the boss. I didn't want this lackey was just telling me to go away. And, you know, they, they, they did try. But after a while, they said, you know what? I, I don't think that's what I want. I, that's why. Came to check out the church, and and uh, that's uh, that that's what turned things around. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah, um, and it was shortly after that that the idea for ASK Benefit Solutions just came to me. Got it. Okay, so it's going back then. You know, pretty early on. Indeed, it was. And now getting to the point of meeting Doreen. So tell yes. me, uh, tell me about Doreen. Well, uh, several years, uh, you know, after stumbling onto uh, Calvary Chapel and, and, you know, learning, really learning about who Jesus was and, uh, uh, you know, how it can transform, how he can transform your life. I was sitting in the back of a church with a friend. And uh, at the time, the pastor would do altar calls where people would come to the front of the church and uh, acknowledge uh, that needed Jesus in their life. And three teenagers, very, very awkward looking teenagers that, you know, one was really tall, one was really short, and one was in between, and none of them looked anything like either one of them. Uh, we're up at the front of the church, and then there was a woman there who was just seemed like she had a, a very kind heart because of the way that she was um, comforting them. And so there they were, professing their love to Jesus. And, uh, you know, they went away to the front of the church where they go and they give them Bibles and all these other things. They said their prayer. And, uh, you know, I noticed that, uh, you know, there was a purse sitting 
couple of rows up in front of where I was. I was like, okay, I'll keep an eye on that. You know, 20 minutes later, Doreen came walking down and said, uh, have you seen a purse? And I said, yeah, I've seen a purse. I just went over, picked it up, handed it to her. She said, oh, thank you very much. And she walked away. <laughs> okay, come on now. And then how did you end up well, <laughs> marrying yeah, this know, woman? You know, a, couple, a couple of weeks later, I was serving as an usher and we hand out Bibles and, uh, you know, she waved and she had a nice friendly wave. And I handed her a Bible. That was the second time. Um, you know, then there was a singles ministry meeting and I saw her there, never spoke. And eventually I saw her sitting next to a guy I knew. And I said, oh, so so Tom is, must, must be married to this girl. I was very disappointed. I thought she was available. <laughs> Turns out that uh, it was just Doreen's neighbor. And uh, so eventually... I was hoping that she'd stick around after church long enough for me to say hello, and but she always took off real fast. So I approached my friend Tom and explained my dilemma, and he said, oh, yes, Doreen, uh, she's as beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. I'll see what I can do to help you out. <laughs> so made arrangements for her to stick around uh, one day after church, and uh, you know, so on the big day, because her kids were misbehaving and she was very busy and was not able to uh, to talk to me. Uh, but I did get a, a note with her phone number on it from uh, my friend's wife who said she would very much like to meet you. Mm. Yeah. So I called and she didn't pick up. So I left a message. I called a second time. She didn't pick up. So I left another message. And about six days later, I said, okay, well, this is it. I guess three strikes you're out. <laughs> I'll call one more time. And she picked up. There you go. Yes. And we talked for, I don't know, 45 seconds, but made arrangements to, to meet for coffee at Starbucks. And two years later, we were married. Well, that is, you know, looking back on it, you know that even today, Doreen doesn't return your phone calls right away, right? When you no. call. <laughs> <laughs> the first clue to the kind of life she leads. She's like the busiest person uh, I've ever met in my life. Well, tell me about and tell us about you know her unique family situation because you described um, uh, Scott and and David and Tom's son was yes. with with them and uh, and also Karen, her her um, her oldest daughter. Youngest, youngest. I'm sorry, youngest daughter. Yes. And and uh, tell me about the unique family situation and and more about Scott and David. Sure. Well, we have a blended now. We now have a blended family with five children. Scott and David were both adopted, which is why they do not look alike and why they do not look anything like uh, our neighbor neighbor's son. And uh, they they both have uh, developmental disabilities. David is the oldest. Uh, He's about six foot seven. And uh, very quiet, likes to stay in his room and play video games uh, and works at the local stop and shop. Scott is the opposite. He's a short little guy, very outgoing, lots of fun. Uh, but, you know, he goes to the day programs and, uh, you know, his uh, attention span is very short. So uh, he's not able to hold down a job. And how old were they when they were adopted, Kev? Oh, they were adopted as infants. Infants, okay. Well, I know Scott yeah. is a barrel of fun. He is. He can't wait to hug you. That is correct. And how old are Scott and David now? Scott is 28 and David is 31. Got it. 
So David's the oldest and all the other kids are in their 20s. That is correct, yes. Uh, Karen is our youngest. She's turning 24, I believe, in uh, December. Karen is 24. So you have Karen, who is an aspiring singer, just moved to Los Angeles, right? That is correct, yes. Ashley is going to be a, a physician. I know yes. she, uh, I saw you when we played golf, you had your Clemson hat on, which I think cost you about one hundred and fifty dollars or $200,000, correct? Uh, no, actually about ninety because I have two Clemson hats, so I, <laughs> I provide the total one too. Okay. <laughs> then Sean lives out in Texas. He's in his uh, business life, right, starting his career. That's correct, yep. And the boys live at home. Uh, with Scott and David are at home. So since you have a web-based business, you know, you could work out of the house and oversee the needs of David and Scott pretty nicely. And, um, you know, in a funny way, uh, Kevin, you, since you work from home, you've been social distancing for about 18 years. So <laughs> you can teach a lot of people about successfully balancing work, family, um, health, and relationships. But this does create a lot of uh, special planning challenges. You and I have discussed this in the past, and um, certainly I'm privileged to be able to help in my small way navigate these challenges as you both look forward to dealing with these issues and retirement coming down the pike and, and the many, many years that you all have ahead. So uh, over the past 20 years, you've been a corporate road warrior, a husband, a dad, small business owner, computer algorithm figure-outer, right, and uh, special needs overseer. So what are your plans for the next 20 years? I'm thinking about uh, a career on the senior PGA tour. What do you think? <laughs> well, I have to learn how to hit the ball as far as you do. I, I outweigh you by 40 pounds and, and you outdrive me by 40 yards. I mean, yeah. Maybe we can put our heads together. We could make one good unit. What do you think? Uh, perhaps we could. Yeah. So you, there's a lot going on. I'm sure, you know, as the, the last 20 years unfolded, you had no idea what was coming down the path. And, you know, of course, we, we don't know uh, what's coming down the next 20 years. But as long as we, you know, stay close to the Lord and keep our relationship strong and grow as, and get better every day, right? And uh, you know, try to help as many people as we can. It's all worked out pretty well so far. And uh, just want to say thank you for being on the show, for being my special guest and for our friendship and for sharing your story. And, you know, I hope that uh, that people enjoy it and they listen to it, share it, and, uh, you know, it helps someone out there. That would be wonderful. Thanks again, Kevin. I will speak with you again. And, uh Next time, we'll resume the, uh, the normal content with Mark. And uh, again, everyone, hope you enjoy the show. And uh, we will uh, continue to always remember 9-11 and uh, be thankful for the, uh, the country we're allowed to live in. Thanks, Kevin. Investment advisory services offered through Donald W. Cash & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of New Jersey.